Look, there's no doubt that I am a purpose-driven person. I mean, right from when I started my work, I've really been able to ground it and find the point of it. You know, when I started Box of Crayons 20 years ago, the language I used was to infect a billion people with the possibility virus. Obviously, that sounded a lot better before there was a global pandemic for two years, but still, the idea is a powerful one for me. Um, you know, over time, Box of Crayons, as it moved to kind of a more corporate setting, it narrowed its focus, but we had a really clear purpose to that as well, which is to teach 10-minute coaching to busy managers. And now with my new venture, MBS.Works, well, it's committed to helping people be a force for change. And, you know, for instance, you can see how the new book, How to Begin, flows directly from that headwater. But, you know, it's interesting. I don't know where this sense of purpose comes from. I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out. I'm an atheist. And like my guest today, who I'll introduce in a minute, he's devoutly religious. And I'm also, I think, a, an existentialist. And amongst other things, I think, as best as I understand existentialism, that means I don't have an inherent purpose by being human. So where does this drive of mine come from? I mean, let me ask you, you know, where do you find your sense of purpose? What's its origin? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Arthur C. Brooks is a thinker and a writer about both leadership and more broadly about a good life. He holds academic positions at Harvard. He was previously head of a conservative think tank, and he writes a regular article in The Atlantic called How to Build a Life. Really interesting article, always based on science and written with uh, a degree of elegance. But, you know, those are just his jobs. And in many ways, and here Arthur and I certainly agree, the least interesting answer to who are you is, well, here's what I do. So what's the why of Arthur C. Brooks? I'm, I'm a guy dedicated to bringing people together and lifting them up. I'm dedicated to helping people understand the nature of their own happiness, how they can practice it in their lives, and how they can share it with others. That's the why of my life. And I've found all different ways to do it. Currently, I do it by teaching at a university and by writing about it in a magazine and giving lots and lots of speeches about it and doing media and podcasts. Um, before that, I ran a think tank in Washington, D.C. And you know, at the beginning of my career, I tried to express that these ideas of lifting people up and bringing them together through music. And so I spent the first 12 years of my career as a classical musician, a, a lot of that in the Barcelona Symphony. That's interesting. So instead of just lifting people up, Arthur instead said bringing people together and lifting them up. I'm really curious to know why he combined the two. Basically, you can't find a place today around the world where people are not polarized. And it's incredibly problematic with respect to happiness. Um, one of the biggest, the biggest uh, impediments to happiness is our inability to actually make common cause across the things that we care about. You find that loneliness is a major epidemic and has to do with the fact that we're atomizing, we're isolating ourselves. And, and a good deal of that has to do with this polarization across political ideas. Sometimes the world seems so polarized. And, you know, I'm not sure about you, but I certainly can despair when I'm trying to imagine what it would take to actually bring us together and as a species, you know, across borders and across politics and across ideologies. But Arthur thinks he's got an answer to that dilemma. My job is to help people, convince people that love matters more than politics. 
that love matters more than really anything. And so if I can help bring people together and cross bonds of love and lift them up to the greater levels of progress and, and th then the world is just, just a better place. So is this a Beatles moment? I mean, is all we need love? Well, that would be great. But here's one of the things that I think is interesting. It kind of moves away from rainbows and unicorns. Arthur believes that the path to happiness begins with unhappiness. Well, unhappiness, it, well, to begin with, if we all say, hey, would you like more unhappiness? Everybody would say, no, <laughs> no, I don't want more unhappiness. And that's a, that's a, that makes sense as far as it mm -hmm. goes. Um, in my study, in my work, in my research as an academic on happiness, however, happiness requires meaning mm -hmm. in our lives. It's one of the macronutrients of happiness. Happiness is made up of enjoyment, satisfaction, and meaning. And yeah. meaning actually requires suffering and pain. It just does. Right. And so in the, the, the search to, you know, we talk about the pursuit of happiness. Well, I think that when I, when I look at the data on millennials and Gen mm. Z today, they might as well rewrite the Declaration of Independence and talk about the avoidance of unhappiness, <clears throat> the inalienable right to the avoidance of unhappiness. But the problem with that is when you avoid your unhappiness, you're avoiding meaning. And when you avoid meaning, right. you're avoiding happiness. So there's a lot that goes into that. Now, it's true, we don't want needless suffering. We want to avoid needless suffering for other people. But we should not go out of our way to avoid uh, undue suffering in our own lives. I mean, it brings to mind the Jung quote that the gold is in the dark. Um, yeah. And also, I think he said, uh, I'd rather be whole than be good. Um, yeah. a, a, similar, a similar piece. For sure. I mean, a lot of people will say, people who you know, share, my, I'm a Roman Catholic, and a lot of Roman Catholics will say, I prefer to be holy than happy. Right. right. And the truth is, if you're holy, you're mostly happy, <laughs> but you're also, there's joy that comes in a more yeah. fulsome way to that by being a complete person under those circumstances. And so there's not only Catholics have a lock on this, on, on this idea to be a person fully alive, you need to be fully alive to all the experiences that are actually in your life. Arthur, how did you come to the why of your work? Because Obviously, you think about it, and you write about it, and you teach it, but you're also very articulate about it. Not many people can, you know, when put on the spot, go, let me tell you the purpose, the meaning, the foundation of why I live the way I do. What was the process for you in terms of uncovering that and refining it? And It, it wasn't that, you know, from my days, you know, back in the crib. It was... <laughs> something that developed in my over my adult life and i remember actually a, a real juncture where i started to consider why the why is more important than the what mm -hmm. when i was in classical music which was my whole life from the time i was four years old until uh, i went pro when i was 19 and then i left it when i was 31 so all the way through my 20s before i ever went to college before i did any academics at all i was a professional classical musician and my favorite composer during those years was johann sebastian bach maybe the greatest composer who ever lived, 1685 mm -hmm. to 1750. He wrote and published more than a thousand pieces of music for all different instrumentations. He, by the way, he also had 20 kids, <laughs> you know, so he was incredibly productive. And, uh, but Bach was asked near the end of his life. He was, an, he was an extremely spiritual, even mystical person. He was asked near the end of his life, why do you write music? What a profound question, right? I mean, not what's your right. music writing process or, and, and he didn't answer it glibly like, I, dude, I got a lot of mouths to feed. It was, <laughs> he said, and he was his minor biographer, now lost to posterity, asked this question, but his, his, um, his answer to the question has endured. He said, the aim and final end of all music is nothing less than the glorification of God 
and the and the refreshment of the soul. Mm. And I thought, man, I want to answer like Bach. <laughs> I want to answer like Bach. I mean, it's like you know, people. Yeah. So why do you play the French horn? Because it's awesome and the music is really good and the money's okay. No, no, no. And the truth is, Michael, I couldn't answer like Bach when I was a yeah. French horn player. I literally left music because I wanted to answer my life's vocational question like Bach. I went in search of something that would be more meaningful. I became an economist. You know, it's like the sublime to the dismal <laughs> because I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to lift yeah. people up. And yeah, because I wanted to lift people up and bring them together. I wanted to do my own version of Bach. But Bach was the one who pushed me out of music. And and I think, you know, today where I, I write books and, and teach and 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 write a column and, and, and do shows like this about the art of happiness. Mm. And I think that maybe I'm a little bit closer to Bach than certainly than I was then. So I, I see that moment where you're like, ah, oh, what I'm doing now doesn't have an answer like Bach can give. And I want that answer. It's one thing to leave the music. It's another thing to then find the purpose. How did you uncover it? I went in search of something that I thought was really going to edify other people. Mm. And it's interesting, you know, in, in studying economics, it, it wasn't just so that, you know, the American economy would work better. That, that was actually the, the reason I studied economics is because I was very, very interested in why some people were poor and some people weren't poor. Right. And I went, I, th I thought I was going to find that, you know, the capitalist system is inherently exploitative, blah, 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 blah. I thought, you know, that's because I was, you know, I was a musician. So I was, yeah. I had predictable politics on that. Um, but what I found was that since I was a kid, 80% of the world's poorest people had been pulled out of poverty. 80% mm -hmm. had been right. pulled out of dollar a day poverty. And, you know, 2 billion of my brothers and sisters had been pulled out of poverty. And the reason, quite frankly, was because of, of uh, globalization yeah. and free trade and the rule of law and, and because of these ideas of free enterprise spreading around the world, which weren't perfect. You know, nothing's perfect. And, and it's not like some crazy laissez-faire thing where no regulation is ever needed. None of that. Right. But it's just, I found the opposite of what I thought I was going to find. And so I studied economics because I wanted to spread the idea mm. around the world that we have, like for the first time in human history, we can eradicate poverty. Right. And we can't, we can't do it very effectively with just, you know, government programs or foreign aid programs. Those are important. They're really, really good. We can do it with our system. If we share our system and we're abundant right. with our system, where they're generous with our system, if we have love that we wrap into our work and with our system and spread it around the world. And you know, that literally there are millions of people not going to bed hungry tonight because of the, these ideas that we've tried to spread around the world. When you have a purpose, which is, I'm not sure if it's a luxury, but it's a privilege <laughs> to have an mm -hmm. articulated purpose. I'm curious to know how you decide where to spend your time. Like a couple of years ago, you moved away from running a think tank to being an academic. How did you choose that as opposed to all the other things you could have done? Because when you're in your position, you have an abundance of choices. There's a, you know, you could have done all sorts of different things in terms of trying to best reach and serve the purpose you've, you've um, said for yourself. H how do you know what to say yes to and what to, what temptations to walk away from? Yeah. And I have been very fortunate in, in having a lot of opportunity because uh, before I was teaching, I was running a think tank in Washington, D.C., at the right. center of Washington, D.C. And, and, you know, when you're a chief executive and, and things are going pretty well, you have a lot of opportunity in the back of that. Now, the tendency is to think, look, I'm going to retire from this. And, you know, I was 55 years old, so I wasn't retirement age, but I was going to step down from that. <clears throat> and I had a commitment to stay for 10 years, but not more. 
And, and, you know, they, they're like, yeah, we'll see, buddy. You'll get there and you, you'll stay, you know, but I did, I, I kept to that. I kept to the commitment. I stepped down after 10 years and it was very, very disconcerting because mm-hmm. that was really what I knew. And I really liked it a lot, et cetera. But I knew, you know, I'd studied this stuff because I was an academic before and I studied leadership right. and I had looked at the lives of corporate and, and governmental and nonprofit leaders and you get one vision. And, and you can push it, you can push it to 20 and 30 years, but woe be unto you because, you know, there's really only two ways to leave mm-hmm. a chief executive job. You can leave um, uh, before you're ready or you can leave on somebody else's terms. And like, <laughs> right. I don't like those choices, but I like leaving before I'm ready a lot more than I like getting shoved out because, yeah. you know, I've kind of overstayed my welcome. So <clears throat> I looked around at what the next thing to do. And then that that required a process of, of what we call discernment. Mm. And there's a long philosophical tradition and in almost every theological tradition as well, spiritual tradition as well, discernment, which is discernment of your why. <clears throat> and then and then finding the vehicle for expressing the why. Uh, and that's what I did. I went through and as a Catholic, I went through, you know, discernment that is very, very common for Christians. Um, but I've also studied this because I've worked very closely with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. We published a lot on this and, and he treats discernment of your purpose the same way. It requires work to uncover the nature of your desire. Here's a weird thing that I find, Michael, with my students. They know everything in the world. (laughs) I mean, they're students of the Harvard Business School. They know everything in the world, except one thing. They don't know what they want. That's such a good question. (laughs) They don't know the nature of their own desire. And, And that's what discernment is all about, is trying to uncover your desire. And it requires actual work. And so I went through the process of discernment where I was spending 15 minutes a day for six months um, praying. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it works with Buddhist meditation. It works in, in many, many different ways to do it. Or I was asking for knowledge about the nature of my own desire. And, yeah. and I had no idea that I was going to you know, go back into academia. I had no plans to go back into academia. But it occurred to me that I wanted to teach these ideas <clears throat> and to work in media and to do the kind of thing that we're doing now where I can articulate these ideas to a bigger audience. I can teach to a bigger audience. And, and at that point, the world opened up to me and I started talking to 10 universities and I went to the one that I thought was the best fit. And, um, and I'm really glad I did. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we, we've had a parallel life in some ways. I stepped away from being CEO of the company I founded two and a half years ago, so mid-2019. And um, yeah, it was a similar kind of wandering around in the wilderness a little bit because you're more entangled in that past role and the company and the status and the and the association with being a ceo all of that um and it took a lot of kind of discernment to sitting with it to figure out what might might come next yeah for sure for sure and and it and you know and there's sometimes a little bit of regret that comes with it too i'm sure that over the past two and a half years i mean i'm sure but I'll, i'll ask michael i mean over the past two and a half years have you said Good old days, good old days, you know, and, sure. you know, and back when I was the king of the mambo and now I'm trying and, and you're rebuilding now I and mean, you're building the show, you're building yeah. a new, a new sort of, uh, yeah. idea empire a little bit. And, yeah. um, it's, it's not easy every single day, but it's the right thing to do. Right. Well, you know, there's a, a writer who I love, whose work is based on kind of existential thinking. You guys look every the role of being an adult in your own life is to make choices, make hard choices. And every choice comes with guilt and anxiety, <laughs> anxiety about whether you've made the right choice and guilt about the choices that you're walking away from. And all of that was true in terms of shifting away from being the CEO at Box of Crayons. And it's still been the right choice. Absolutely. 
Mm-hmm. No, for sure. And you know, and, and as time goes by, there's a lot of data that shows that you can't you can't know the appropriateness of your discernment and your choices until about 18 months in. <laughs> right. And so what, the biggest mistake that people make is when they have a major life change, mm-hmm. it's actually in my new book, is that they tend to, after six months, they're miserable. And yeah. so they think they made a mistake. Well, right. no, 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 no. So it's the same thing when you go to college. My, my, my youngest daughter just went off to college in the fall. And I said, look, honey, if you, if you actually like college in our, by <laughs> October, it means you're partying too much and you're going to get a bad report card. Right. You know, if, if, you you should basically it shouldn't even be until the November at the <laughs> earliest where you start to say this might be okay. Yeah. Right. And then after right. Christmas, maybe you know we'll yeah. talk about it, and it's only going to be in your in the second year of school before you say, yeah, this is really for me. This is really, really I love it because I've seen a ton of data on this, but the same thing is true for you and me. Yeah. Yeah. That you know it right. takes it takes time and and it it requires learning about yourself and experiencing the unhappiness and sacrifice and even pain that we talked about a minute ago. Yeah. The uh... The model I've I've heard is the Finland bus station model. You might have heard of that as well, which is like What's that. Tell me about that. Well, um, when you when you catch a bus from the Finland bus station, for the first ten miles, all the buses follow just one of four different routes, and it's only after the first ten miles that the the routes start diversifying and you start getting into interesting places. And the problem is that too many people get off in the first ten miles, going, "This isn't the right bus for me." And you need to stick at it a little longer before it actually starts finding the interesting places and going to the places that you might not have expected that yeah. the, that the journey starts to pay off. Yeah. And there's another, there's actually another characteristic of change for somebody like you. Um, you know, you ran a box of crayons and, and now you're building a new empire kind of from scratch. Yep. Um, as soon as you step down from a major leadership position, you have neurochemical alterations that necessarily follow you that mimic clinical depression. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it is. I mean, Jordan Peterson has, has talked an awful lot about this way. You're, you know, your fellow Torontan. Yes. And, you know, he talks about the fact that, that serotonin levels dip when people step down from, from CEO mm-hmm. jobs. But I've seen it so profoundly in my own practice that, you know, I, I, I will even recommend that when somebody's stepping down from a major CEO job, that they have a preventative visit to a psychiatrist That's to good. see whether or not they should actually be, you know, sort of prophylactically using some some antidepressants or some, some selective serotonin yeah, uptake, yeah. reuptake inhibitors, um, because it's such a common thing. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to step down. <laughs> so speaking of people who've held fairly senior leadership roles, tell us about the book you're going to read from. So I want to read today about something that has had a big impact on me for a long time. And, and this is the most important s- classic of the stoic philo- philosophical literature. Mm. This is the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius was the was one of the the great Roman emperors in the in the sort of the latter part of the Roman Empire, but he was the the, the most virtuous of the Roman emperors, um, f- preceded by and followed by Roman emperors that were considerably less virtuous than he was, <laughs> and, and and less successful as well. Right, and he kept a diary during his time of of Stoic ideas. Now he had studied Stoic philosophy from his tutors for forty years, um, you know, before you know his his. his glory years as as the emperor. And so he was a stoic philosopher in his own right and very sophisticated and highly intelligent. And he kept a diary of his stoic thoughts, kind of his own self-improvement journal, never intended (laughs) to be widely disseminated. Right. But it fell into the hands of people who, after he died, who said, this is pure gold. And it 1700 years later, it is still read. I read this book um, the first time about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it rocked my world. I have to say that it really, it was just so full of 
wisdom. It also empowered me so much to think about my emotions, to think about my how I felt about the world, and understand that that I don't have to be managed by my emotions. Right. Um, I can manage my emotions by right. running the causality in the in a different direction. Now, now I went on to study to become a social scientist and study modern neuroscience. I understand the biological process of managing your emotions. Right. Marcus Aurelius didn't need that. He understood the profound truths of managing oneself. And that's what I'm going to read from a couple of pages from the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. I've been, I've been waiting for somebody to pick a bit of Stoic philosophy to read from. So this is perfect. So yeah, Stoic thanks, philosophy. Arthur. Yeah, sure. And it's, it's become very hot in the last mm -hmm. few years because my friend Ryan Holiday has, yep. you know, he's done the daily Stoic and, you know, people are really, really finding Stoic philosophy. But I have to say that I was reading it before it was cool. So, yeah. <laughs> so this is two pages from book four of the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. This is, he, 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 since it's a diary, it's just little snippets. Mm. So these are 11 short meditations. Brilliant. Starting with 38 and going to 48. So I'll, I'll number them accordingly. Meditation number 38. Look into their minds at what the wise do and what they don't. 39. Nothing that goes on in anyone else's mind can harm you, nor can the shifts and changes in the world around you. Then where is harm to be found? In your capacity to see it. Stop doing that and everything will be fine. Let the part of you that makes that judgment keep quiet, even if the body it's attached to is stabbed or burnt or stinking with pus or consumed by cancer. Or to put it another way, it needs to realize that what happens to everyone, bad and good alike, is neither good nor bad. That what happens in every life, live naturally or not, is neither natural nor unnatural. 40. The world is a living being, one nature, one soul. Keep that in mind. And how everything feeds into that single experience moves with a single motion. And how everything helps produce everything else, spun and woven together. 41. Epictetus said, side note here, Michael, Epictetus was the most famous of the Stoic philosophers was not known personally by Marcus Aurelius, but Marcus Aurelius's teachers had studied with Epictetus. Quote from Epictetus, a little wisp of soul carrying a corpse. 42, there is nothing bad in undergoing change or good in emerging from it. 43, time is like a river, a violent current of events glimpsed once and already carried past us and another follows and is gone. 44. Everything that happens is as simple and familiar as the rose in spring, the fruit in summer, disease, death, blasphemy, conspiracy, everything that makes stupid people happy or angry. <laughs> 45. What follows coheres with what went before, not like a random catalog whose order is imposed upon it arbitrarily, but logically connected. And just as what exists is ordered and harmonious, what comes into being betrays an order too. Not a mere sequence, but an astonishing concordance. 46. Remember Heraclitus. When earth dies, it becomes water, water, air, air, fire, and back to the beginning. Those who have forgotten where the road leads, 
they are at odds with what is all around them, the all-directing Logos, and they find alien what they meet with every day. Our words and actions should not be like those of sleepers, for we act and speak in dreams as well, or of children copying their parents, doing and saying only what we have been told. 47. Suppose that a god announced that you were going to die tomorrow or the day after. Unless you were a complete coward, you wouldn't kick up a fuss about which day it was. What difference could it make? Now recognize that the difference between years from now and tomorrow is just as small. 48. Don't let yourself forget how many doctors have died after furrowing their brows over how many deathbeds. How many astrologers after pompous forecasts about others' ends. How many philosophers after endless disquisitions on death and immortality. How many warriors after inflicting thousands of casualties themselves. How many tyrants after abusing the power of life and death atrociously as if they were themselves immortal. How many whole cities have met their end. Helike, Pompeii, Herculaneum, and countless others. And all the ones you know yourself, one after another, one who laid out another for burial and was buried himself, and then the man who buried him, all in the same short space of time. In short, know this, human lives are brief and trivial. Yesterday a blob of semen, tomorrow embalming fluid, ash. To pass through this brief life as nature demands, to give it up without complaint, like an olive that ripens and falls, praising its mother, thanking the tree it grew on, Well, Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm getting a sense of the transience of life. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean imagine I mean imagine that being your journal. Right. <laughs> he was he was um preternaturally gifted, obviously. But to th to write this to himself. Right. It's one thing to, you know pontificate about it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> So 20 years ago, when you read this for the first time, how does this shake you? There's something bracing about this. Mm. And it's a, it's, a, it's a cold splash of water in the face. What it does is basically it makes you zoom out. Um, the problem with day-to-day -day life as we see it is it's just so boring. <laughs> it's we, you know, my job, my work, my life, my car, my house, my money, my friends, my, my, me, me. It's so boring. It's like watching the same episode of a television show over and over and over again and getting a perspective that's bigger than me where I see with perspective my own relatively small role in the broader, in the broader scheme mm -hmm. of things. That's not scary. That's reality. That's the kind of reality that I want because that perspective makes it possible for me to actually understand the nature of being fully alive. I'm a walking zombie when I'm in this silo of my own narrow interests all the time. This is one of the reasons that I found in my subsequent research that, that people who seriously practice a life philosophy or, or religious faith are much happier than those who don't. Right. And, and it doesn't load on a particular faith. I wish it were mine, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, any serious wisdom, tradition, philosophy, you know, meditation, yeah. prayer, it all works the same way. It lets you zoom out on the nature of life itself. And to be able to say, to say, to be free to say, yeah, I'm little. Yeah, yeah it's trivial. Yes, I will be forgotten. I will be forgotten by the people on this earth. So therefore, what I do right now in love mm. is what matters. I remember being in Istanbul 
and stumbling across this kind of little worn down nub of stone and reading the and buried a kind of a, a foot or two under the current height of the pavement and reading the inscription it was the marker of the center point of the ottoman empire and it just felt this moment of transience around you know empires they come and they go after knowing that life is transient that we are this brief blip of light with darkness either side I've got two questions. They might be the same. They might be different. What are you ambitious for, and how do you think of success? So there's earthly ambition and there's supernatural ambition. Mm. And as a Christian, I'm ambitious to go to heaven and take as many people with me as I can. I mean, I want that because it's not darkness. It's just different. It's right. life eternal. It's life everlasting, and it's life. It's the beatific vision, which is <laughs> I study happiness. Well, that's happiness, right? right? Um, so, and and not everybody agrees with me, by the way. Not and a lot of smart people think that that's insane. What I just said, but that is my view. Right. My ambition for this little brief time of life on Earth, however, really gets back to what we talked about before, mm. which is this incredible privilege and opportunity of lifting people up and, and and bringing them together, and in all sorts of transgressive ways. Um, the, the single most transgressive teaching over the past 2000 years comes from Jesus of Nazareth, who said, love your enemies, right. pray for those who persecute you. <laughs> yeah. I wrote a book called love your enemies, which wasn't a religious book, by the way, it was a book about politics, but the whole idea of being able to do transgressive, strange mm. counterpoint things in life. And in so doing, lifting people up and bringing them together, that's, that's, that's success. And that's an adventure. It feels like not quite enough people have read that book <laughs> recently. <laughs> yeah. um, how do you find the courage to make these transgressive acts? Well, we, it's interesting because I, you know, I've studied the lives of people who've done transgressive negative things, and mm -hmm. th th that takes a lot of courage too. It takes a lot of courage. I mean, it's not meritorious. It's terrible. It's evil to yeah. do terrorist things, but it takes a, a bunch of courage to do that. And so if we can take the courage to do a transgressive negative act, we can certainly find the courage. We can muster the courage to, to, to engage in an act that's transgressive and positive right. for other people. Now, what do you lose when you say love your enemies? You lose the admiration of people who are not meritorious. Mm. You lose the admiration of people whose admiration you shouldn't want. Right. <laughs> which is that's a very marcus aurelius way to look at it of course you know he says why do you strive after men who you know who who don't deserve your attention or as you right. know my my old friend neil ferguson um he said i wouldn't you know why should i let somebody into my head that i wouldn't let into my living room right right, <laughs> right? but but still we have a, a natural very human desire for the approbation of others Mm. including total strangers. And there's, there's good evolutionary reasons for this. Look, I mean, um, human beings, uh, it, it's actually what we find in, in, in the modern neuroscience literature that yeah. being cast out, being rejected socially uh, right. stimulates the same neural substrates that are stimulated through, through physical pain. That's right. <clears throat> and the, the evolutionary reason for that is that 200,000 years ago, if you got thrown out of your tribe, you'd be wandering around the frozen tundra and dead in a day. Yep. And so you want to be accepted. Social mm -hmm. comparison and acceptance is unbelievably power as an evolutionary force, but we are not the sum of our of our evolved impulses. Right. And when we think about these things, this is this is exactly Marcus's point. 
I mean, Marcus's point is that you have impulses, be the master of your impulses, don't let them mm-hmm. be the master of you. And this is a, a perfect case of that. You're afraid to be transgressive. You're afraid to speak the truth. You're afraid to express love to the people that are unpopular among your friends. Well, mm-hmm. well master that, master that, you be in charge. I mean, that, that reference to uh, Neil Ferguson around why would you let somebody into your head that you wouldn't let into your living room? That's, I think he said this in an article, actually. It's like that's easier in theory than it is in practice <laughs> because these people worm the way into your head. And you, you know, part of what you're talking about reminds me of the Martin Berber philosophy, the I, it, I, thou philosophy, which is like, how do you constantly build I, thou relationships, not just with people in your tribe, but people beyond your tribe? Right. But our instinct particularly when the people not in our tribe is to move to an I it relationship, objectify them, lessen them, belittle them. Um, Is there a practice that allows you to notice those impulses to objectify and soften them? Yeah. And that's, that's the whole point of the book that I wrote. It is not the book that, it's coming out now, the, the book that I wrote in 2019 called Love Your Enemies. And it talks about practices where we can do that, where we deeply listen, where we make mm-hmm. a, a, a public commitment never to use our values as a weapon, only ever as a gift, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is, is, is completely sensible. I mean, and, and that is, of course, a, a, a tenet of Stoic philosophy. If you, you know, you knock on somebody's door and they open the door and you smack them across the face with a bouquet <laughs> of flowers, well, guess what? They're right. not going to appreciate the flowers very much. Right. That's just using your values as a, as a weapon eviscerates the moral content of your values. And so remembering some common sense things. And, and there, so there's a whole bunch of techniques that you can do that. But, you know, personally, one of the things that I recommend is that we take, we think of, I mean, I've, I've for years, I've uh, engaged in loving kindness meditation, which is something I've learned from His Holiness Dalai Lama. Um, a loving kindness meditation is one in which you focus on somebody that's hard for you to have loving kindness for. Right. And, and you imagine yourself expressing words and, and actions that are kind and loving toward that person. And it just, it just changes you. It changes your brain chemistry. It changes your whole outlook. It makes mm-hmm. you happier. It makes you more effective. It makes you better off. And it makes you feel powerful because you're no longer being managed by your ill temper. You're no longer being managed by your your tribal impulses. There's a whole social science um, branch that's dedicated to this. It's, it's, this. it's the study of social capital. And my colleague at Harvard, Robert Putnam, was really the, the, the founder of this. And there are two kinds of social capital. Social capital is this connective tissue between people. Right. It creates bonds of trust. And you know, it's, we do things together. We trust each other. It's not market transactions necessarily. Mm-hmm. But there's two kinds. There's bonding and bridging. Bonding social capital is that, you know, Michael and Arthur have a bunch of things in common, and that's why we like each other. Bridging social capital is across differences, is finding bonds, is finding links across differences. So Michael and Arthur are different, and those ways are interesting to each other. And and so we really want to understand those things. Great leaders and happy people are extremely good at building bridges. And so that's the key thing is like, am I just reinforcing bonding social capital in group mentality and reinforcing out group negativity yeah or am i looking for ways to bridge across differences and that's where the beauty in life comes. that's where the thrill in life really comes from so the the new book is called from strength to strength do you need different strengths in midlife and beyond 
We, we do. And this is one of the things that I point out that, you know, you've gone through, uh, you're younger than I am, but you've gone through a change, a big change in your career. I've gone every 10 years, I tend to take my whole career down to the studs and rebuild it. <laughs> right. So I'm on my fourth entirely different career. And who knows how many, you know, maybe God gives me one or two more, you know, maybe it's like, no, nah, you're done. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> But the whole point is that that w- w- transitions are hard and we have to know the skills so that we can transition. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, this book shows that there's a particularly strong uh, transition that we need to make, usually between the ages of 35 and 55. There's this, it's a, not a midlife crisis, but it's a midlife change in strength. So when I call strength right. to strength, that's from this, the 84th Psalm um, in, in Hebrew, which means may you go from strength to strength. And, right. and it's a, it's a, it's a traditional Jewish blessing, maybe nice. go from strength to strength. Yeah. And so how do we do that? Well, to begin with, we have to recognize that we have certain innate strengths early in life and different innate strengths later in life. And this has to do with the structure of the brain actually. Mm. So early in life, there's a, there's a success curve that we, that we call, we climb called the fluid intelligence curve. Fluid intelligence is a kind of intelligence that, that correlates with raw cognitive horsepower and our ability to innovate. So, um, so you're, career as an, as an innovator and an entrepreneur yeah. early on was super loaded on crystallized, I mean, on, on fluid intelligence. In your mid thirties to you know early fifties, that's when you're transitioning to another kind of intelligence that you get in greater abundance. When, by the way, your fluid intelligence is declining right. in every industry, your fluid <laughs> intelligence declines and you're going to see trouble. I mean, it right. doesn't mean you're going to fail, but it means you're going to struggle. Oh, believe me, but I'm the, very, I'm very conscious of how my fluid intelligence is declining. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because your innovative capacity, your yeah. ability to come up with, to solve problems quickly with novel mm. solutions. But there's another kind of intelligence behind it called crystallized intelligence, your ability to take ideas, which you're doing right now with your show and yeah. blending them together. It's like I, you, you quoted a couple of different philosophers. This reminds me of this. This reminds mm-hmm. me of that. That gets stronger and stronger through your 40s, 50s, and 60s, and can stay very high through your 70s, 80s, and 90s. That's your instructive capacity. That's your right. ability to be a mentor, to be have wisdom, to, mm. to take ideas that are already there, to put them together into coherent stories, and to use them in the service of others. And that's what we need to do. So the big transition to go from strength to strength is to go from the fluid intelligence curve to the crystallized intelligence curve. And this is an owner's manual on how to do that in your career and in your life. I love that. What does it take to become an elder? Not just elderly, not yeah. just kind of in that second phase of your life, but holding the, the status of an elder. So th- there's a couple of different groups that, that talk about elders. So there's a guy named Chip Conley, yeah. California, who started a, 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 a big uh, hotel chain, hospitality chain, mm-hmm. was a super successful, rich and famous guy. He's yep. a great guy. And he... You know, in his late forties, he was just done. Yeah, he burnt out. He burnt out. His successes were coming harder. It was he just felt like he did wasn't on his game anymore. He didn't know why. Well, now we know why. It's because fluid intelligence tends to be in decline. And he decided that he was going to do something new. So he retired and he retooled. He went to Airbnb. And what they did was they they were asking him advice all the time and they called him their modern elder. And he's like, (laughs) Give me a break. He kind of it kind of well, it bummed him out. It's like because right. he's in California, where youth is everything, right? Right. I mean, everybody yeah, yeah. has surgery to keep looking young all the time. It's it's dreadful, actually. But I mean, that obsession with California um, youth culture. What you don't and know is like, I'm I'm actually 93, and it's only massive surgery that's making me look like this. But I impressive, digress. Michael. Impressive. <laughs> you know, it's like, you. and so, um, and so what he did was when he was there at Airbnb, he he realized that he had 
abilities he didn't know he had to mm. to combine knowledge to put it together in novel ways to see around corners to teach people ideas he never had that earlier in his career and so he put together something called the modern elder academy that he yeah. teaches he brings people that want to retool their their careers and in my book i'm talking about something very similar to to be an elder is to somebody who is high in crystallized intelligence and knows how to use it in service of other people now by the way you can also be incredibly professionally successful using it right there are CEOs. If you want to be a great CEO and you're 65 years old, you have to be using crystallized intelligence, not trying to use your fluid intelligence. That means you need to be a teacher CEO, somebody who's firing other people up, who's accentuating their ideas and mixing those ideas together. The big reason, by the way, that Silicon Valley has gone and you know the social media and information tech has gone from the most respected entrepreneurial part of the American economy to the least respected in 15 years. Yeah. is because it's all fluid intelligence and no crystallized intelligence. Mm. And and you know they need Good. they need way more old people in every single one of those companies. As a matter of fact, if I do my job in the coming years, I, I want to start a labor market for over 70 executives. Right. I think there's not a company in the world that shouldn't have mm. at least one person in the C suite who's over 70 years old and is the and is the is the elder of the company. Mhm. You know, David Brooks wrote his uh book the second mountain where you're like you know the first part of your career is you you climb the career mountain and then you get to now and you're like now what what's what's my legacy and it's that kind of step into crystallized intelligence and and eldership do you need to put aside or lessen your individual ambition to be able to step more into this teaching role you need to change your ambition mm. so uh, the ambition uh, along the fluid intelligence curve you can have the ambition to be the you know the the super lone wolf, um, ultra achiever, the guy who invents everything, the guy who solves the problems faster, the girl who, you know, actually mm -hmm. has the most game on every single team. And that's not going to work because fluid intelligence, as it naturally structurally declines, uh, it requires that you jump onto this next curve, which says, I'm going to be all about assembling teams. I'm going to be yeah. all about teaching ideas. I'm going to be all about putting ideas together, mm. as opposed to being the person who comes back after the long weekend with the solution to the problem all by myself in the darkened room. Some people can be still pretty good at that when they're older, but not as good as when they were younger. And that's certainly not exploiting the natural, the natural intelligence, the natural gifts that they have yeah. later in life. I've just written a book called How to Begin. And paradoxically, that means I've been thinking a lot about how to finish. And I really liked Arthur's comment talking about leaving the think tank. You can leave before you're ready, or you can leave on somebody else's terms. Obviously, neither one of those choices is ideal, but it is a well-trod truism that it's the ending that allows the beginnings to appear. Now, you might not be coming up to a 10-year anniversary of a commitment like Arthur was, but if you had to leave before you were ready, I mean, if you had to leave now, what would you leave behind? What would you take with you? And where would you go? Now, these are hard questions. I, I don't know what my own answers would be to that, but I am sitting with them trying to figure that out. It's interesting to notice immediately for me, and maybe this is true for you, how much I could abandon without too much regret. But I don't want you to abandon this podcast. <laughs> so if this conversation with Arthur has struck a chord, let me suggest two interviews that you could revisit. 
Lauren Nordrum is so very thoughtful about change. And in my interview with him, he read really a wonderful poem. Um, that conversation is called How to Meet Resistance. And also, I love my conversation with Jenny Valentish. Uh, that's called How to Reinvent Yourself. She is such an interesting person, just kind of fierce, fearlessly exploring kind of the edges of who she is and the edges of how she shows up in the world. If you're interested in more details about Arthur, um, his website is arthurbrooks.com and you can find all his work there, podcasts, books, articles, free courses, the whole shebang. Um, and just a nod to his brand new book out, which is out about now, Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. Obviously, there's a nice kind of dancing partner to the How to Begin book I wrote as well. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for giving the podcast a review if you've done that. Um, if you haven't done that, maybe you could go somewhere and give it some stars and say what a charming man Michael is. Um, if you like this interview particularly, one of the best ways to grow is just to pass it on. So just send a, send a note to somebody saying, Oi, listen to this. And if you'd like a little more, including some access to unreleased podcasts and interviews, um, you can go to Duke Humphreys, which is our free membership site. Um, you'll find that on the mbs.works website. Um, click on the podcast link and you'll find your way there, no problem. I think all that remains to be said is that you're awesome and you're doing great. <laughs>